Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. And before we did that, we literally just spent 55, like, heart-stopping minutes trying to get all get our microphone set up. And, uh, Chris, we are very not good at that. Well, here's the thing. We're, we're recording remotely. I forget why we're recording remotely, but we're recording remotely. And as a consequence, our technological incompetence has been fully revealed. Though it is very nice, your, the view from your window is very nice. I'm looking over your shoulder and I can see the Memorial Bridge laid out behind you, the city, the federal, the, the imperial city laid out behind you. It's a very lovely view. Everybody should come visit the Washington Free Beacon offices. We have a beautiful view. And as Beacon reporters like to point out, we are many, many floors above Politico with a more beautiful view than, than Politico. I also like that you're in buildings with like these massive defense contractors yes. and stuff where it's like you are also weaponized. So that's that's good, too. Yes. We have basically one item on our front page and everything else is like page A8 or A12. This week. And that is row. Row, row, row. What did we think of coverage, Chris? Well, you know, just as a an overarching concept, the, when we talk about the thickness of the media bubble, and certainly it can be understood in terms of political bias, but also I look a lot, there's a lot, relatively speaking, there's a lot of abortion in the United States. One in five, the Guttmacher Institute's information says one in five pregnancies in the United States and in abortion. And that's a lot of pregnancies. Now we would all- Oh, so one in five who get, okay, one in five ends in miscarriage. And then I guess one in five that sticks also ends in abortion. I did not know that. I, I don't, I don't want to wow. cite, I, I don't okay. want, I don't want to claim knowledge I don't have. I just, I just use it to say, you're talking about a, a, a large number of, of events and you're talking about a, a relatively large number of people. The coverage of this though, even so, has revealed to me what I think is something of a divide between urban and rural wealthy and working class. I think there's been a lot of thick, thick bubble revealed in the way that the importance of this issue is talked about for people for whom this is an important issue. If you are a person who wishes to have an abortion and can't get one, which is again, a relatively small number of people, given the fact of how many states and the populations of the states where abortion remains and will continue to remain very much legal. I guess what I'm saying is the intensity of the discussion here and the, the, the focus on it and how much it is has to me been out of, and I say this as a man, so maybe I don't get it, but this has been out of proportion, way out of proportion with how many people are directly touched by this. I understand why it's very important. I'm not saying it's not important. It's a huge victory for the pro-life movement. And I understand why for the pro-choice folks, this is a, a shattering defeat. And I get all of that, but I just feel like it's been 
way, way, way too much. I was watching the, I believe it was Good Morning America. I don't know. I was in a little bit of a travel hell this week because of like many thousands of Americans, a bunch of canceled flights. And so I unfortunately consumed some morning news. And I'm here to tell you the amount of abortion coverage, I think it was Good Morning America had on, I thought, and this was not the day of the decision, right? And I thought, are there that many people in America who are re- who really feel that strongly about abortion? I don't know. I actually don't agree with that. I think it was genuinely huge news. It was huge judicial news that the yep. Supreme Court overturned the precedent, whether or not you feel strongly about abortion. So it was huge judicial news. I think it did. It will impact directly a lot of people, which is more than you can say for a lot of the political news in the country. And so I did think it merited a lot of media coverage. That said, I hated the coverage with a passion. (laughs) I think it merited a lot of coverage, but I hated it. And I couldn't believe, I mean, I shouldn't say that because I could believe, but I was watching the Sunday shows and I was like, newly enraged by, you know, I watch Meet the Press and I watch, so on Meet the Press, I'm just taking one example, but this could be done for every one of those shows. They have on the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, and they are pressing him, you know, is an IUD going to be illegal? Is the birth control pill going to be illegal? What is life going to be like for women? Then they have on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And, but this is like just a template. There's not one challenging question asked of abortion supporters of any nature, including, you know, liberal constitutional scholars don't think that Roe was a strong opinion. Wasn't it on Democrats to legislate and prepare for this eventuality? There are. And then they come out of the gate, the Democrats charging that Kavanaugh and Gorsuch lied in their confirmation hearings. There were no challenging questions asked of those making accusations and arguing that these justices should be impeached, such as, you know, Justices Kagan and Sotomayor also mouthed the same truisms about Second Amendment cases as, you know, settled law and their respect for precedent. And they have also voted to strike down gun laws or to uphold gun laws. I'm sorry. They've taken the same positions as Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, but ones that liberals like. They're not nobody's saying that they lied, but I just am like gobsmacked by the lack of challenging questions put to Democrats on this issue. Uh, you cannot be gobsmacked. I'm I'm enraged. Okay, not gobsmacked. I'm I'm enraged. And sorry, like I totally butchered that point. No. I was just trying to make about Kagan and Sotomayor and like Manchin and Collins who come out such, you know, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Susan Collins of Maine come out and say they were misled when. Kavanaugh and Gorsuch obviously mouthed the same, their tautological statements about the nature of Roe as settled law. And nobody's asking them challenging questions about their obviously political posture right now. They wanted to vote to confirm those justices. And now they want to say they had no idea that this might happen. Uh, Certainly there is. I I watched Amy Klobuchar on with Joy Reid and the sneering anger contempt for Manchin and Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. It was pretty intense. You know, well, here's what NBC uh, said 
well, not all, I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't say all of NBC. Here's what I think Ken Donilon from NBC wrote. Delanian, right? What's it? How's it pronounced? Delanian. 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 More than Chris, obviously. The Supreme Court's abortion decision is likely to set off a wave of legal and political disputes among the states and the federal government, unlike anything seen since the years before the Civil War, legal experts say. Now, there is a Civil War lust that is out there in a lot of the media and a real fixation on this stuff. My, my esteemed colleague and friend, David French, and I differ, I think, on this question, but David takes, a, I think, a, a, re, a reasoned point of view about the likelihood of a national divorce or some sort of civil war. But this kind of stuff is, you know, this is flummery. Yes, it I depends on what legal experts you ask, right? But, but not only does it depend on what legal experts you ask, it was not that long ago, like Loving, the, the case of Loving versus Virginia was 1967 which is not, it, it is not, not ancient history, right? The, the, the national struggle over desegregation and civil rights and voting rights was two generations ago, basically. And it was a very rough fight and it was resolved. I think part of the problem that we have here is that people on the left don't tend to think about federalism very much. So they don't see how this, <clears throat> they don't have confidence in a, in a federated republic. And mostly it seems like, it seems like people on the right are not, they're not eager to talk about the topic at all, right? As a perceived negative for Republicans going into midterms, I think there's some self-censorship going on in the right media and talking about this decision. But of course, the truth is this I don't think will cause a civil war. I don't think this is like the run-up to the civil war. I think this is like the death penalty. I think this is like other gay marriage, powerful, culturally divisive uh, or guns issues where the states are going to function very differently, right? We're going to have very different laws in very different states. And it's, you know, I've been asked 20 times since the decision and bef and then, you know, dozens more times before that, how will this affect midterms? Well, it will have some effect on midterms. It will definitely be a help to Democrats in fundraising and in base motivation. There's no question. There'll be some House seats that we'll be able to, we, we won't know which ones, but we'll be able to say, oh, that probably helped them out. Certainly in the Senate races, it will help in Ohio for Democrats, Arizona and Democrats, Colorado Democrats. There, there will be benefits to Democrats in swing states for sure. But I think a thing that the news media doesn't like to deal with is this is going to take a decade. I don't know. It's going to take a very long time for a new consensus to be reached here. And it's not going to happen all at once. And it's not going to be a, it's it is neither going to be a civil war nor a kumbaya. It will be the gritty, difficult work of living together in a federal republic. Chris, I got so impassioned that I railroaded right over the clip montage that I'd wanted to play, which was contrasting the questions that Chuck Todd posed to Asa Hutchinson versus those that he posed to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And they were on the show on Sunday back to back. So I just wanted to give our listeners a flavor of the, the hard questions that were put to Asa Hutchinson, which are the sort of questions he should get. And the softball questions that were put to AOC, including, so do you think Brett Kavanaugh should be impeached. Let's take a listen. <laughs> so joining me now is the Republican governor of Arkansas, Asha Hudson. Governor Hudson, welcome back to Meet the Press, sir. 
Uh, it's great to be with you, Chuck. Thank you. Let me start with the uh, with what the Arkansas law does. No exception for rape or incest. Do you believe that's a mistake? So if a 13-year-old, though, in Arkansas is raped by a relative, that 13-year-old cannot get an abortion in Arkansas. Are you comfortable with that? Is there going to be a department in Arkansas that, that uh, inspects uh, all miscarriages or investigates miscarriages when they treat women um, and decide that, a, that, that an abortion is necessary due to save her life. That doctor's not going to get investigated. That doctor's not going to get harassed. Whatever you thought of Roe, that decision never forced anybody to do anything they didn't want to do. This decision now will force a woman to carry a pregnancy that they perhaps didn't want to do. Does that at all make you uncomfortable? If you got elected president, would you advocate and sign into law a nationwide ban on abortion? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, Congresswoman. Welcome back to Meet the Press. Um, look, I, before I get to my first question, uh, I want to get your reaction um, to the governor of Arkansas, uh, especially specifically to this issue of it is that he is comfortable with the government essentially forcing a woman to carry out a pregnancy. Congresswoman, I know most of what may ch change things is going to have to be done at a ballot box. But what would you like to see the Biden administration do between now and November? This do you think lying, do you think lying at a confirmation a, a, hearing is an impeachable offense? I want to ask you a slightly bigger picture question here. Jason Lincolns wrote this in The New Republic, uh, and it seemed to ring true with a lot of folks. Under the headline, the Democrats' theory of change, wait for the Republicans to screw up. For the GOP, change comes after long periods of hard work, steady funding, and maintaining enthusiasm and momentum through periods of setback. For Democrats, change is reactive, coming only after the GOP's ambitions have hurt just enough people to make Republican rule untenable. Right. Yeah, it, it's not It's not a, it, it's funny, one of the other things that I've been asked a lot, I'm, I'm reminded here that the Supreme Court's job is not to be popular. And the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, and you know, we have we have Gallup numbers that talk about the Supreme Court, which had had been sort of at a career, not a career high, but sort of a generational high in its esteem prior to 2020. First, a bunch of Republicans soured on the Supreme Court because of the the refusal to help Trump steal a second term, and then now a huge decline among Democrats since the leaked opinion. Oh, that that is something I wanted to ask you. So. You're a you're you have a good sniffer on this stuff. Given how, <laughs> given how everything given given how everything played out, who do you think the leaker was? I don't. I'm guessing it was a liberal law clerk, but I don't really know. I I highly recommend the, my favorite podcast that I've listened to in the wake of the Roe decision was our friend Barry Weiss's interview with the Yale constitutional law professor, Akhil Amar, who is a big liberal. I took his constitutional law class and I loved it. It was like, it was an amazing class, very gifted teacher, but it was, I think she titled the episode, the anti Roe professor who is like the pro-choice anti Roe constitutional law professor. But he she presses him on who does he think the leaker is. And he basically said, like, I have to say, I wouldn't be surprised if it was like some ultra left wing Yale law student, because these are the people who were yeah. churning out our elite institutions. But I highly recommend that we'll link the episode in our show notes. And I really enjoyed hearing him talk about his own view that he is very pro-choice, that he would vote for 
laws supporting access to abortion, but that Roe was, you know, an embarrassment of constitutional law and why he thinks so. And was I thought it was highly informative. And he's like a model of how to have a civil conversation about these highly charged issues. So so we'll link and, that. But I have no idea. And I don't think that they will find the leaker. You don't think so, they'll catch the leaker? I bet they I bet they do. I bet they do. And if it is, if it is, if it is, several chocolate roses for you, if they catch the leaker, if it is, or bacon roses, if it is, (laughs) if it is a liberal, I would imagine that at some point a victory lap will be had at some point. This person will will not be able to resist saying it was me. I tried to stop them. Um, And, uh, you know, one, one of the, one of the interesting things about the coverage to me also has been the the catastrophizing, the future catastrophizing. Now, Clarence Thomas, who's been on quite a journey, Clarence Thomas wrote a, a concurrence to the majority in the case in which he was like, and what about the gays, basically, he, where he said, there are other cases that we should go back and use this approach to go rip up. Whereas the six other justices, including Alito, who's a pretty hard line, said, this is not about other things. This, this, um, why am I drawing a blank? You, you took constitutional law class at Yale. What's the term that we're looking, I'm looking for. Privacy um, right or the substantive due process clause. Yes. Substantive due process. So Clarence Thomas, who has become a lot more, I guess, pro-government or pro-government authority over time. The, he definitely said that, but the decision with the, from the six others makes it clear. This is not what they want to do. And. I'm not aware, and I'm sure I will be proven wrong by some state legislator somewhere. I am not aware of any Republican efforts to go against birth control, right? I don't, I don't know anything about that. And the urgency, I guess, is what I was alluding to in the beginning. This is covered like it's about to be the handmaiden's tale and that it's, we are, you know, the dark night is about to fall across the country and sodomy laws will be revived and that contraception will be banned and all this stuff. And it, the frenzy in the coverage, I guess the point being, there's enough here that's interesting and historic to cover without churning new chips into the batter, right? You don't need to say, what's next for you, life in a, in a, in a reproductive camp uh, on, the, on, the, on the Montana border? Like, what, what's next for you? Government-mandated pregnancy. Didn't you get the memo? Government-mandated pregnancy. Obviously, like, came down from the DNC because every Democratic politician was tweeting that. I, I uh, And against government-mandated pregnancy. I never, I never tire of praising the great Caitlin Flanagan of The Atlantic, and she had a great point that she made, which was shared to me from someone who saw it on Twitter, where she said, you know, she obviously was opposed to the decision, and, you know, she's made her views on the subject clear over time, but she, she cautioned strongly against attacks on the Supreme Court as an institution, and that is definitely something that is out there, right? Like, why should we, you know, if the Supreme Court... She- the the dem the Democrats and the media, but like you know, with their but you know, but I repeat myself, but they're intentionally stoking this like crisis of confidence in the Supreme Court because they've lost control of the court. So their well, AOC on Meet the Press said that the court has a crisis of legitimacy, and you know, oh, we need to pack it, we need to impeach the justices. Like that's 
Well, and, and, and NBC's favorite Democrat, Elizabeth Warren, has a whole thing that she, we're going to, and we're going to eliminate the filibuster and we're going to pack the Supreme Court once we do that and all, and all things will be possible. So I think on the one hand, the coverage is negative for Republicans, but I think the catastrophizing of the future and the, the radical concepts are part of a larger effort, which is to, to understand this as something very good for Democrats, that they, this is a moment and they're going to turn things around for midterms and they're finally going to get rid of the filibuster and that this is the, this is the straw that will break the camel's back. I just don't think that this will touch enough individuals, right, for that kind of systemic change. The people who, if you live in a very red state and you want to have access to elective abortion throughout your pregnancy, at all points throughout your pregnancy, this will, it, this is going to be of serious consequence. And I don't mean to minimize anybody's personal experience, only that most of the people in America, as, <laughs> as election results will show us, most of the people in America live in states that align with their political views. As a matter of fact, we know that's true because we are always complaining about the extreme partisanship in the United States and how siloed we are. So... Yes, it's consequential, but I think part of the reason for the catastrophizing of the future is in service of concepts like Cortez's and Warren's, where this is going to be the turning point to bring down the patriarchy or whatever. That brings us to our row clip of the week that we got to play. And I think this NBC News correspondent, whose name I am unaware, takes the cake. Secretary Janet Yellen recently said access to abortion rights directly impacts the educational levels of birthing people as well as their future earnings, which all of the data is bearing out here. But the other important financial question is if the birthing parent is able to travel and if they work for the right company and are seeking an abortion, more individuals we're seeing are going to need to rely on their employer, right, for that financial support to carry that out. Now, birthing people, eh? Well. And... We also have a lead of the week, and okay. the title there goes to National Public Radio with a story headline, The End of Roe v. Wade Has Huge Economic Implications for Male Partners Too. And the lead is, there's a mounting body of evidence on how having or being denied an abortion affects pregnant people, including impacts on their mental health and the finances of them <laughs> and their children. <laughs> this is barely English. The effects on their male partners have received less attention. Wait a minute. What if the partner. To say that. These why is it a male? Why are we. Yeah. Geez. NPR. Why don't you. Geez. I mean, come on. What is this? The, the, the third Reich here. We're just, we're just blanketly assuming that the partners are male. Talk Pregnant about insensitive. Okay. That, that's pretty good. We're flipping to page A12. And to the the American Association of Pediatrics's new breastfeeding guidelines, and the New York Times wrote these up, and we'll link the piece in in the show notes, of course. But this was so amazing. So the Times writes that they so so the AAP, the Association of Pediatrics, and I have a special interest in this because I made it about four and a half months. It is really hard work, and I any mother listening out there will 
any birthing person listening out there will will know this. So they now say you're supposed to breastfeed your kid until your kid is two, two years old. And the Times writes about this. The recommendations also suggest that pediatricians have, quote, non-judgmental conversations with families about their breastfeeding goals and acknowledge that exclusive breastfeeding is not always possible. The AAP notes that children of gender diverse parents may have less access to human breast milk and that clinicians should be mindful of using more inclusive language like chest feeding when working with this family. Well, first, I, I have to say I may get in trouble for this. That it be it will be convenient, I suppose, if you breastfeed your child when they can ask if when they can talk to you about it and express a preference for which side or whatever. That's pretty good. Or press uh, your chest. No, I mean if you're if you're two years old, you're walking around. You're like, hey, ma, it's time, <laughs> go. So that's chest that, feeding was so amazing. I, I I do think it's good that they're talking about the pressure that women who struggle with this feel and how intense it is because the lactivist community can be pretty militant. And we heard a lot of it in the coverage in and around the formula shortage where there was, you know, that shaming going on. So I think it's good that they do that, but it is another example of how, and this is really becoming a theme for me, the excessive attention to and this is this goes with things like transgender people in sports and stuff like that where when you're talking about vanishingly small numbers of people right you're talking and that doesn't mean that they should be obliterated or unheard but it takes so many words and so much language to do this stuff that the important the important not that it's not all important but the important thing for the largest number say that it's okay well no it look if you are and i I, I don't want to fall down into the briar patch of terminologies here, but if you're a same-sex couple that has adopted a child and want to breastfeed. You're chest feeding. Well, I'm not, but not making fun of it. If you're a same-sex couple, a same-sex male couple who's adopted a child, that would be an intense feeling, right? You, it would be scary or concerning. Is my kid going to be ruined for life because we can't breastfeed and blah, 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 blah. So I'm not saying that their concerns aren't real. What I am saying is that this is how an important message, which is for millions of people, hey, if you're having a hard time breastfeeding, if this is a struggle for you, we can, we can do, we, we can help, right? And this doesn't have to be shaming and it doesn't have to be pressure, but you need even more words to talk about a vanishingly small number of people under that. And it, and it is how organizations out of a desire to placate, appease, or just do right in their own minds, confuse their messages. Anyhow, I don't think I'll be doing any chest feeding in my <clears throat> lifetime. Talk to Patrick. See if you can get something hooked up, right? Exactly. You got like you got like another year and a half or whatever, so apparently. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can, can get, ride, ride your tricycle right on up and just a- ask for a snack. It'll be fine. Okay. Exactly. Chris, I have not had the chance to read this story, so I'm going to turn... This is like a page A12 story that I have not gotten to. So I am going to turn the mic over to you. Talk about, talk about downplaying our great content. This is like, the, 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 these are all gems. So if you live in D.C., right there is. Oh, is our story about Punchbowl, our deep dive on Punchbowl News. All, all equal in our world. So Punchbowl is former, the former authors of Politico Playbook. Yes, my former colleagues who are wonderful. In 
two years ago, maybe. I don't know. So it's Ben Sherman and, oh, Jake, I'm sorry, Jake Sherman. Ben Sherman makes great cigars. Anna and Summer. Anna. And, and John Bresnahan. Oh, I thought it was just the two of them. Okay. okay. Well, anyway. Brez is the third amigo. Okay. So they started a subscription-based product called Punchbowl News a few a couple few years ago. And basically, it's for people who think that Politico Playbook is not deep enough in the guts of the Washington swamp, like not that, that it's, that it is more micro even, and has an even greater emphasis on what's going on on the Hill in a micro way and the power at like it, it, it promises to be even more inside baseball than put a finer point on it. Yeah. Play now is supposed to be all of Washington, including the social scene and whose birthday it is and what's happening in the White House. Punchbowl is Capitol Hill, Congress. That's it. Okay. So the Columbia Journalism Review did a very deep dive on this question about Punchbowl. And here's a couple passages. Annual membership in Punchbowl costs $300. And as of late 2021, at least 3,000 people had signed up around 100,000 got the free version. Punchbowl declined to provide a current subscriber count. If that seems a small audience, it is an especially powerful one. And on that basis, founders can sell valuable ad space and sponsorship opportunities to lobbyists seeking influence. Here, perhaps, quantity is quality. And then, But Sherman, speaking with the Columbia Journalism Review last year, defended access journalism on principle and described the reality for D.C. reporters who are intimately close with the people they cover. Quote, we call it a news community because we live among our readers. He said, we live in the Capitol and exist among our readers and in a physical and kind of metaphysical and theoretical sense. When I spoke to Sherman, he asked, who in D.C. doesn't have a stake in the outcome of anything. I mean, are we supposed to just hang out with like artists from Boston? That's life in the swamp. And I really, I, I think this is definitely true of Axios and Playbook and obviously Punchbowl. It's gross. The, I don't have those relate. I know, I, I don't know about you. I have worked hard to not become friend, to friends with people I cover. And when that friendship occurs, I know I can't really cover them, certainly not in the same way without disclosing. I do know a bunch of lobbyists and I do know a bunch of people, but I don't think that describes my life. And I don't think that describes how it is. The piece talks about the way that lobbyists pay for access to events with the Punchbowl writers. And they had a thing at the Washington Redskit or the what are they now? The the Commodores? Commanders. The commanders. <laughs> the, are they all commanding something? Are they commanding themselves? I don't know. Anyway, and it's all yucky and it's true. I don't think it's maybe as big a deal as Columbia Journalism Review says, is, is, intimates that it is, because obviously if you're paying $300 a year for this, that's what you want, right? You don't think that these folks are unbiased. You think that they're sort of, they're, there's an attitude here about, institutionalism. It's obviously not a Republican or it's lightly the Republican institutionalists are probably represented in there too. But I would imagine the people who pay for this and consume it know what they're getting. I don't think they're being duped into thinking that this is somehow, you know, straightforward. 
I have thoughts. Hit me. Okay. I am a subscriber. Okay. I find the product to be quite good at telling me what is happening on the Hill. Yes. I find the, like, seedy part, and it is not particular to Punchbowl. It is no. political, Politico, and Axios, and every one of these things to be- Washington the, Post does its own yeah, salons. Yeah. The partnerships with businesses that who sponsor your newsletter and partner with you for events, because then- like, those are the people you're really making money from, and you are not going to freaking kick them in the teeth, okay? But I find the punchable product of, like, we're bringing you the news first about what's happening on Capitol Hill to be really good. And as you say, like, they are serving a an audience of sophisticated consumers who basically understand what's going on. And it is like a real clubby audience that chooses to look the other and they're all friends with each other. Like we're right. all friends with each other. that audience chooses to look the other way at the seediness of what's happening with these business partnerships. Yeah. And I it, like I say, this is not a general interest product. The people who are participating in the in in the swamp are swamp creatures themselves. And I don't I don't think it poses an ethical problem. What I want to know, though, is. Who will win, you know, can, can their business model work and can they, I, I, I think yes. And as you say, I, I have, I have access to some other products as a result of the work that I do. And I do love, by the way, the morning dispatch for a generalist. If you want to be, if, if you, if you want to pull the lens back, lots of Washington news, but pull it back further. It's great. I love it. And there's all sorts of products out there, but I think this is probably a workable business model and probably that doesn't make Politico happy and that probably doesn't make Axios happy either. I'm with you. Okay. Well, that's, see, that's not, that's not A12. That's not A12. That's right there. Okay. Here, I, here's my standard complaint. The narrative over news is one of my, one of my pet peeves. And this is the Washington Post. Your takeaways from this week's primaries were recording on Wednesday. So on Tuesday, there were primaries in a number of states. And, quote, Republicans continue to nominate far-right candidates for statewide office, says the Washington Post. And I say, okay, well, what do you got? And then you look at the piece, and you know what it says? Well, in Illinois, they they picked this guy. And by the way, in the lead, not emphasizing how Darren Bailey who's the kooky, kooky candidate in for governor in Illinois, how he won. He won because J.D. Pritzker, J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois, spent, I forget what it was, 35 million bucks or something. I forget how much money it was. It was crazy how much money he spent to prop up. Money. The, Defeating to prop, the African-American candidate in the exactly. primary. Exactly. So this is, it, it, it gets a nod, mention it there. But in the second graph. So, but the lead, the, the lead item is about, it gets a lot more difficult after Tuesday's Republican, no, what did it say? Some believe that with 2022 looking tough for Democrats, Republicans could take the governor's mansion in deep blue Illinois. That got a lot more difficult after Tuesday's Republican primary. Voters nominated conservative firebrand Senator Darren Bailey over a more traditional Republican candidate to take on Governor J.B. Pritzker in November. De- Democrats are thrilled about this. So it goes on and talks about the, in Pennsylvania, Then after four paragraphs of this, what does it say? It says, 
Oh, yeah. But in the other statewide primaries that took place on Tuesday in Colorado, all of those candidates got wiped out. And the candidates in Colorado for Senate, governor, and secretary of state were all normal Republicans. And all of the Trump-backed election stilo cuckoo candidates all got stroked in Colorado. And that by number is three compared to one in Illinois. And the, the, the willful blindness here is narrative over news. But, I'd be, but lest, lest I let my antipathies towards the Washington Post get the better of me. And Wait, as I, I just, I just yeah. uh, add something to that. Yeah. J.B. Pritzker, so he spent all this money to get the kook on the ballot. Yeah. And as, as the January 6th hearings are unfolding and we're hearing about the dangers of having kooks who believe in election denial and stealing elections yeah. and this, that. J.B. Pritzker, this comes days after Citadel, the enormous hedge fund, announces that it is decamping Illinois for Florida relocating its corporate headquarters. Ken Griffin, the CEO of Citadel, is the richest resident of Illinois, and he's packing up shop. That announcement came in the wake of two other announcements of Boeing leaving Illinois and Caterpillar leaving Illinois. So J.B. Pritzker not looking so hot in Illinois right now. And that goes, what I'm trying to say is, like, these Democrats who think, who, who are doing this out of cold political calculation, they could lose. You know, these people could win. J.B. Pritzker, like this, right. this, this is a disaster for him. He well, is, he faces like some real political peril. I bet you, I bet you he gets reelected, but yes. And I wrote about this for, I don't know, the, the time is a flat circle, but I wrote about how in, incongruent it is for Democrats to reasonably talk about threats to elect the the fair conduct of election and the peaceful transference of power and then backing candidates like this. And I talked to the woman who is now the Republican nominee in Colorado about she had the race in hand, she felt like, and then three weeks out. And I, I happened to be stuck in Denver, though it was a pleasant, if you're, if you're going to get stuck in Denver, get stuck in Denver when you can watch the Colorado Avalanche defeat the Tampa Bay Lightning with other, with Coloradans. That was fun and exciting. But the, I watched the ads on TV and the Democrats had them in max heavy rotation trying to prop up these election thieves. And it's, it, it is, I do not likely, I do not lightly accuse people of dispatriotism, but it is hard to reconcile what they're doing with the earnest good of the country. And it, the, the Democrats who understand that this is the wrong thing to do need to continue. To, they're starting to speak out, but they need to continue to speak out because it's rotten. Oh, no, if I, lest, lest I forget, Colby Itkowitz at the Washington Post wrote the right story. So her colleague wrote the wrong story where she turned. Well, tur- let's name and shame. I forget who it was. But kudos to Colby Itkowitz. She wrote it right. She got the story right. She did it correctly. And kudos to her. So what one paper, two views. All right. Alex Wagner in for Rachel Maddow. Okay. Who is, tell, tell our listeners who Alex Wagner is. Yeah, those of us of a certain age will remember Alex Wagner, who was on MSNBC, was a political analyst at MSNBC, 
and had a host. Had a the, that's right. Ha- back in the Obama era. And then she married the White House chef, right? But he wasn't just the White House chef. Oh, well, he was, was Sam. He was Sam. He is Sam Cass, who was the senior advisor with Michelle Obama on the efforts to like plant vegetable garden, obesity, to fight obesity and better lunches and healthy America. And they were like, when I when I think of the how bilious it, I feel just thinking about the coverage of their courtship and their marriage, you know, the 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 seamiest underbelly of the kind of coverage that we're talking about with the playbook and all this other stuff. And she was just the the doyenne, just the darling. And as I recall, and I don't want to get this wrong, as I recall, her dad is a big donor or something and that her entree into the world of politics came through some familial connection. And she's bright. She was young. She was very charming. And it seemed like when she was starting out, and this was what, like 2007, prompt, 2008, nine, as she was starting out, she was like the it girl. Everybody was talking about Alex Wagner and how great she is. She's Caucasian and Asian American. She's and vivacious and all this Very stuff. Pretty. Yeah. And the, and the, it never happened, right? Like the thing that was, that everybody said was going to happen did not occur. And her, it was, there was sort of a failure to launch thing going on. And now she's going to take over four nights a week for Rachel Maddow on MSNBC. Womp womp. Okay. Well, well, here, so here's the, but here's the question for MS. So Maddow has been, had been the, the iron horse, right, of their lineup. She has the most devoted followers. She was really the only one of their primetime host that had a center of gravity of her own, right? That could, that could, could reliably generate ratings. And when they had really big news on the democratic side, she could get huge numbers and was sometimes beating Fox, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So here's Forbes from earlier this year, according to ratings data compiled by Nielsen, the week ending February for the week ending February 13th, the Rachel Maddow show with fill in host, Ali Velshi delivered an average total audience of 1.551 million viewers, down 26% from the previous week. Among viewers 25 to 54, the demographic group demographic group most valued by advertisers, Maddow drew 177,000 viewers, representing a 24% drop from the previous week. So the question here is, Maddow keeps her Monday night. I, I, I think it's a bad... I understand why they probably did the deal with Maddo. Hey, we'll take you whatever we can get you. Like if it's, if that's only one night a week, then we'll take what we can get. But I think this concept of not, not making a clean break and you've got the real host and then sort of this fill in host for the rest of the week. I don't think that sounds like a ratings winner to me. And I kind of wonder, will Maddo keep her ratings the one night a week she's in? Well, Monday, Monday, if you had to pick the night, you'd, you'd want Monday, right? You'd as to, to start the week off and it's, that's, those are good viewership. Monday's, Monday's a good viewership. Monday and Tuesday, it's good. You have a lot of people tuned in the end of the week. The ratings basically ramp up at the beginning of the week and then tail off at the end of the week as people, you know, travel and do stuff and have lives and don't sit around stoking their own rage, watching cable news. But it's I, just me. Just, just, just like, Patrick, it's Friday. Let's stay, let's, stay, 
Yeah, let's stay let's stay home and see what Ellie Velshi's cooking up. But <laughs> but, but I I I you know this we'll, we'll see. I always wish everybody all the best, but this this seems in keeping with the rest of Alex Wagner's career, which is to say it sounds right, but I don't I don't know how it will really work in practice. This is an item that I very much hope is true. <laughs> well, this is there. There is in, in the over here on this one. In in the in the world of performative outrage, we have people who point to Tucker Carlson in his most re- or one of his most recent rants, claiming that Democrats are going to dose the water supply with antidepressants to make the hollowed out, lonely feeling of childless Americans go away. He also said that they would distribute cats to all of the single women in America. I will smug in that water and petting my cat. Surrogate, the, as, as surrogate children to fill the empty space inside of them that could only, only ever be met with a baby. And that's one of those where Carlson is doing the John Stewart or the Noah, what's his name, Trevor Noah, where it's like joking, not joking. He's, he's joking, but he's not joking. And if you, if you pick on it, it's too much. But I want you to hear hear what he said here, because I think it is an important thing to think about for what cable news does and what this show does. Let's take a listen. Families are for the tech tycoons in Napa. They've got a ton of kids. And for the Haitians huddled underneath the bridges at the border in South Texas, they've got a ton of kids too. But for you, a middle-class American, sorry, your deepest desires are far beyond reach. I want to point out here that that is a massive load of horse crap. And it is a damaging lie about the condition of the United States of America today. It is enfeebling to individuals to claim that middle for middle class Americans, your deepest desires are far beyond reach is a garbage thing to say. It's a bad thing to say about my country. It's a bad thing to say about middle class Americans. It's not true. And there's no place for that kind of claptrap. And I don't know what's I don't know what's wrong with that show. And I don't know whether they know that what they're doing is damaging and don't care or whether they're doing it on purpose or or whatever it is, but it is not true for middle-class Americans. Your deepest desires are not far beyond your reach and they're living it and doing it every day. And the conditions in this country are not at all like they're being described in a statement like that. I hope we get the spiked water. (laughs) <laughs> well, in Washington, D.C., people are on enough antidepressants that it probably just is in the water supply. It's probably just it's it's probably just circulating. Finally, this is the, like in our style section, Chris. Yes, here's the style section. Back, back of the back of the paper, Rupert Murdoch divorcing at 91. He and Jerry Hall are no more. I got to say. It takes a real kind of optimism to divorce at 91, doesn't it? I mean, that's, you, you'd figure, I guess she's. Or I, I took it as like, I'm assuming that they had a, a prenup, but yeah. if they didn't, like a real kind of vindictiveness, it's like, you're not getting anything, lady. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure that the, I'm sure that the remunerations package, I'm sure that there, I'm sure that there were emoluments that were arranged in advance of the union and that that was not entered into lightly. And I did think it was interesting. The New York Times coverage on this talked about basically with more free time on his hands, will Murdoch be more trouble for Fox and other News Corp properties without Jerry Hall to keep him occupied? I thought, I thought was an interesting take on that. I don't, I don't know that that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I like this. The October 
December pairing, Ms. Hollis, 65, <laughs> Mr. Murdoch, 91, made the couple the regular subject of rival tabloids with paparazzi regular catching the two smiling broadly on a pristine beach in a wintry football stadium or at a black tie opening. I mean, I just hope something is written about me like that one day. Well, we can do it right now. We'll, we'll have, we'll, we'll start coverage. Just you and Patrick spotted. We'll have on our own blog. Pristine beach. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, spotted at Tate. Ellie and Ann Patrick. Like spotted wiping up spit up off their clothing and spotted like struggling spotted with strollers. Spotted at Tate enjoying a chocolate rose, a doting Patrick wiped away some some vomit from his wife's shoulder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, time for our obsessions of the week. Where we break down these stories that we could not get out of our heads. And mine is like very specific, but we saved the bombshell blockbuster January 6th testimony for it, since mine is kind of a subset of the January 6th testimony. I mean, this was definitely the most interesting January 6th testimony. I'm sorry, Chris. I think she kind of blew you out of the water with the tantalizing tidbits. Well, say say who she is. She is Cassidy Hutchinson, who was an assistant to the former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Yes. And one of the great Mark Meadows, one of the great political incompetence of my of my time. Truly, truly a goofus. So she is it, it helped that she was very cute and poised. Telling. She wasn't just cute. She was poised. She kept, that's a high pressure situation. Poised. She, and she kept well, it together. Hey, like, you know, someone who's not attractive could also be poised, but she was <laughs> attractive and everything. And so she testified among other tidbits that Trump threw a plate against the wall, uh, threw his food against the wall, but like with the plate that when he heard Bill Barr had told the AP that there was, you know, no con- election fraud and that Trump tried to overpower a Secret Service agent who refused to drive him to the Capitol to participate in the storming of the Capitol. I mean, I thought it was interesting testimony because she made news and told people, told us things that we hadn't heard before. That said, the most interesting part of her testimony was this bit about Trump trying to join the protests at the Capitol which were secondhand. And I was kind of surprised that they, and that it was immediately followed by reporters saying that the secrets, the sources told them the Secret Service agents contradicted her testimony. And I was kind of surprised that they wouldn't have the agents themselves there testifying just because there's an obvious weakness. Well, in- this, this, this may get overtaken by events as we're recording this, but I would imagine the complexity here relates to the Secret Service and the secret part of the Secret Service, right? So if if it gets to, and we have a lot of law on this, we've had a lot of rulings on this, Secret Service can't do its job if presidents can't trust that what happens around them will be confidential, right? So that understanding is really important because otherwise, so the Secret Service basically has a deal with every president. You give us unrestricted access to your life, and we are not going to write tell-all books. We are not going to testify. We are not going to do whatever. This is in the line of duty, and we're not going to talk about it. I don't, and 
her, obviously the thing that she said about the grabbing at the steering wheel and the placing of the hand on the clavicle as he was, you know, in, in the car and his, his outrage, the secondhand stuff got the most attention and that provides a good place for Trump to go to, if it's, if the secret service agents, and apparently they have already testified to the committee. So the committee or one of them uh, already testified to the committee behind closed doors. So we'll have to sort that out over time, but it's a real legal complexity and it's a real sort of ethical complexity around these questions. So I see, I'm just looking at Twitter and I see a tweet from Betsy Swan at Politico, U.S. Secret Service spokesman Anthony Guglielmi tells me that in the 10 days before the Hutchinson hearing, the January 6th committee did not reach out for more details regarding the Beast Ride story forthcoming. So anyways, we'll continue to follow this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that tidbit, which was the most salacious, seemed to me obviously the weakest link in this. My obsession was a New York Times story that we will link and the it's by Michael Schmidt, Luke Broadwater and Maggie Haberman. And the headline is how the January 6th panel has redefined the congressional hearing. And the sub headline is no bloviating speeches or partisan rancor. Lots of video and a tight script. The story of Donald J. Trump's efforts to hold on to power is being unspooled in a way totally new to Capitol Hill. And it's about the scripting and use of clips, et cetera. And the key figure in this is the former ABC News president, James Goldston, who we hear about and how he's, you know, really expert at telling a story through video. It's obviously a media story. And a friend reached out to me and, it, it you know, was telling me a little bit about this, but I went digging. And Goldston apparently has, it's a really interesting media story. He has working on his team to produce the January 6th hearings, a team of Nightline, former Nightline producers who are really expert at weaving together media, like video clips in a really devastating way. And the way to understand this and what he does, I think, is to go back and watch the documentary. And you can find it on YouTube, Broken Up in Parts. It's called Living with Michael Jackson from 2003. But Goldston with Martin Bashir, who would later end up at MSNBC, they got this extraordinary access to Neverland. And this is way before Michael Jackson was known as predator or pervert or anything. Oh, eh? uh, it, was, it was way before he had been proven. Totally. Like before he yeah. went on trial, but it led to like the downfall of Michael Jackson. So they got this incredible access and everything was videotaped. And so they were based in London at the time, but I wanted to play a couple of clips from it because they are really like the holy S type clip. So the first one is Michael Jackson talking about the birth of his second child. Let's play that. Okay, Mike. Paris was born soon after. Yes. Your daughter. Yes. How was that? Were you there for her birth? Of course. <clears throat> of course. It was just uh, magic. She came out the wrong way. Her face was faced the wrong way. She was being kind of choked by the umbilical cord. So I was kind of worried. And it took her longer. And uh, and I was so anxious to get her home that I, uh, after cutting the cord, I hate to say this, I snatched her and, and just went home with all the placenta all over her. You, you are kidding. 
Yeah, I'm not kidding. Got on a towel, ran. And they said it was fine. They said everything's okay with that. And I clean. I I uh, got her home and washed her all off. She was just born. I know. Why did you want to do that? Because I felt that it was okay. They told me it was okay. Debbie said it was okay, and uh, I got the permission of the doctor. Uh, I think I was so frightened that they would give me some bad news. I was so scared, but there was no bad news to be gotten. I mean, I was laughing out loud listening to that. And the second one, they actually have on film the 12-year-old who later that year would go on to testify against Jackson when he was put on trial. And let's play a little clip of that. It's yours. I always give the best to the company, you know, like to him. I said, because he was going to sleep on the floor. I said, no, you sleep in the bed. I'll sleep on the floor. But haven't you got a spare room or a spare house here where he could have stayed? Yeah, but no. Yes, I have, we have guest units. But whenever kids come here, they always want to stay with me. <laughs> they never want to stay in the guest. And I have never invited them in my room. They always just want to stay. They say, can I stay with you tonight? I go, if it's okay with your parents, yes, you can. Did, did, did you, were your parents happy that you were here with, with Michael? Yeah, my mom was all very, very, very happy. And I know they're happy because I was happy. Did they come with you? Yeah, most of the time, but I wasn't really with my parents. I was mainly with Michael. But they were happy that you were here? Yeah. And there's a whole slate piece that gives the background of this living with Jackson living with Michael Jackson documentary that is fascinating. And that piece was published when the Neverland documentary came out. And the headline is, this isn't the first time a Michael Jackson documentary inspired a reckoning and super interesting. But I thought that going back and looking at the living with Jackson documentary was a very interesting way to understand the January 6th hearings. That was very good. And I, I, I don't know whether I've mentioned this before, but shout out to Luke Broadwater, my fellow West Virginian, who I knew, I don't know whether I knew his, his dad, I covered his dad, who was a judge in West Virginia, but Luke Broadwater, who's ended up at the Times, has just really, and he was at the Baltimore Sun for a time before that, has really had an, an exceptionally good career so far. What a good job he's doing in making West Virginia proud. Time for your obsession. Oh, yeah. I guess I should obsess then. My, obs you. <laughs> my, my obsession is about, my obsession is always the same, it seems like. But it's, so Alex Sujong Laughlin, who writes Pointer Institute's The Cohort, which is a newsletter about gender in media. So she wrote a piece that started with an anecdote an anecdotal lead about her own experience of uh, the deep sobbing and weeping that she experienced after Hillary Clinton's defeat on the night of Hillary Clinton's defeat in 2016 and taking, as she describes dramatically, taking off her press credential to sit on the, on the press riser and sob as she experienced this, as she says, not for Hillary Clinton, but you know, for women everywhere and all of this stuff. And you, of course, would not do that as a professional journalist. That would be wrong. That is not what you're supposed to do. And she says that the reason we say not to do that is because we want to keep up the appearance of objectivity. Here's what she has to say. 
After the Supreme Court released its opinion overturning Roe v. Wade last week, several newsrooms sent emails reminding workers to avoid tweeting anything that may give a perception of bias. And they did, by the way, and good for them. The emails were sent in service of newsrooms' desire to uphold the journalistic value of objectivity, or at least the appearance of it, when, according to Gallup, only 36% of the country has a, quote, great deal or, quote, fair amount of trust in in the mass media. I understand why the need for legacy newsrooms, snarky, to be perceived as, quote, unbiased, snarky, seems critical. But the pursuit of the appearance of objectivity, as opposed to focusing on truthful and contextual reporting of the news, has always been a cynical public relations tactic, one that came to prominence in a time when the industry and who works in it looked very different than it does today. Performing objectivity is outdated, and if we want to preserve public trust in media institutions, the best thing we can do is tell the truth. And I just, I don't, I'm not speaking here to Ms. Laughlin or any particular journalist. But here's the thing, and I just say it all the time. Shut up about your feelings. Shut up about your feelings. We have lots and lots and lots and lots of people sharing their feelings. Your feelings are not important when you're covering the story. If you get into opinion journalism, you can share your feelings. You now Ms. Laughlin has an opportunity to share her feelings. She has a column that the Pointer Institute has provided for her where she can share her feelings. But when you're covering the news, you don't share your feelings. That's not what you do. You do the opposite of that because if you share your feelings as opposed to aspiring to be objective, then you will cue readers to not believe the stuff that you're saying, right? You will cue readers to view you and and then news is then consumed information news, breaking news, the kind of straight news or commodity news that we need to run a society, right? The basic information that we have to have about who said what to whom. Those things, if they are colored by the person's feelings, will be harder to access for people who are on the other side. That's just obvious. And the idea that, that all of this is, as she calls it, cynical, right? That it was cynical for people to aspirationally be fair is a bunch of garbage and aspirational fairness is just that we will never be completely fair because our own implicit and internal biases will affect us. But we have to try for the sake of our listeners or readers when we're doing the straight news, straight news has to be a thing for goodness sakes. It is that time. My favorite time of the week. Reader mail, Chris. And up first we have A note from Jeff, who says that in the segment on the New York Times environment and law piece, you say the journalists didn't know that senior status judges only have an honorary position and haven't heard cases in years. That's generally not right. Judges with active status are full-time judges who hear a full complement of cases. But when a judge assumes senior status, they don't necessarily stop hearing cases. Instead, the judge gets to hear occasional cases at a rate of their choosing. Some judges who assume senior status still hear cases. The former Justice Souter occasionally hears cases in the First Circuit, but the late Justice Stevens didn't hear cases after assuming senior status in order to engage in public advocacy. The ambiguity of senior status may be why the D.C. Circuit website lumped all the judges together, but even if senior is imprecise, I think the D.C. Circuit really should just keep two lists. And this is about the piece by... Oral Davenport piece where she said, she incorrectly listed the, number the yeah. judges and, 
and I may I may have spoken imprecisely, but there was one judge in particular that Jonathan Adler had pointed out had not heard a case in years. But yes, it's true that there, there's all kinds of senior status, right? There are senior status judges who remain relatively active, and there are senior status judges who don't hear cases at all. And that's true, but, and perhaps it is true, Jeff, that, and by the way, I would encourage anybody who wants to write in, your chances of getting heard are better if you include your whole name and your hometown so that we can make sure that you're a real person would be helpful. But for Jeff, I would say you're probably right, but it's also still evidence of why that they should keep two lists, but it's also evidence of why if you're not, beware the fake expert, beware the fake expertise, write what you know and leave the legal reporting to legal reporters. Next up, this is one that went straight into Chris's veins. From Kristen of Wardensville, West Virginia, she writes, Chris, I have to share a tidbit about tobacco growing in Wirt County, West Virginia, following your comments during the For the Media, It's 2024 Already episode where you spoke about fraudulent elements of a Jason Blair story on Jessica Lynch, including a reference to a tobacco field. While there may not, well, there may have not been a tobacco field across from the Lynch family home in Palestine at the time of the article, you'll be surprised to learn, I certainly was, that there was a history of tobacco growing in that area of West Virginia. I have a dear friend whose parents are both from Wirt County and her mother's family from Peewee, West Virginia, just down the road from Palestine, grew tobacco as a cash crop. My friend remembers the tobacco fields of her grandfather and the work required to hang the tobacco to dry in a barn. She remembers tobacco seeing, she remembers, I think this is supposed to say, seeing tobacco harvested as late as the early 90s, and her aunt and uncle continued growing it even after that. So Blair missed that part of the story by a few country miles. Sincerely, Kristen. Kristen Colbank of Wardensville, West Virginia. Wardensville is a beautiful place in the world. Thank you, Ms. Colbank. And I will tell you, I did not want to bore you at that time with the depth, with that, with that kind of depth of detail. But so Wirt County is in the northern part of West Virginia, just at the base of the Panhandle. And so my hometown of Wheeling, West Virginia, was and still has significant tobacco processing take place there. Marsh Wheeling Stogies, which were named for the Conestoga wagons that were going west. Wheeling was once the gateway to the west. And the Stogies, the cigars that were made there, they sold, you know, in, in kegs. The, the big products that they sold in my hometown to the, to the settlers that were crossing the Ohio were calico from the Stifles and nails uh, from, I forget what the name of, but Wheeling had a huge nail plant. The first, the patented there and made their LaBelle nails. So cut nails that you needed to build your little house out on the prairie. And then of course, tobacco, because daddy needed to smoke something and chew something on his way. So you had the Stogies and then the Block Brothers, most famously, took the clippings from those cigars and, and, and then treated them again, cured them again to make chewing tobacco, most famously mail pouch chewing tobacco, which is still a product and mail pouch sweet ain't bad, but they make, I believe, still Lancaster chewing tobacco among others in Wheeling. The kind of tobacco that you use for cigar wrappers, the outside wrapper, and the kind of cigar and the kind of tobacco that you use for chewing tobacco 
which I will. If firearms or golf clubs are present, I may be known to partake of a little Lancaster. It is it is so sweet that I ought to be embarrassed, but it is delicious. And I, I will avail myself of some of that dark leaf, good dark leaf that they do grow in the North. The tobacco that dominates the world, of course, is the, I believe, and I'll get in trouble with the Hurt Brothers on this one, but is the flu-cured lighter leaf tobacco that they grow in the Carolinas and Virginia, which is the lighter stuff that they put in cigarettes. But the darker stuff you grow in the North that's good for chew and good for cigar wrappers. I look forward to being corrected on the types of tobacco. But yes, uh, it is definitely true, Ms. Colbank, that uh, Northern West Virginia does have a history in the tobacco industry in my hometown, most of all. Chris, it is that time for your favorite item of the week. Where I am forced to say something nice, but you lead by example. And actually, seeing your favorite item, I now realize that I think that is also my favorite item because I happened to watch this live and it was so awesome. So, well, I don't want to take away your favorite item. We have a joint favorite item because this was really great. We got to play a clip. All right, let's take a listen. So this is this is my former colleague, Brett Baer, interviewing the Trump-backed gubernatorial candidate in Arizona. Her name's Carrie Lake. Let's take a listen. Just to circle back, you say that it's an illegitimate president. You say that the election was stolen. You speak a lot about this on the campaign trail. There's a mountain of evidence, and I wish that the corporate media would start covering it instead of putting their head in the sand and acting like it didn't happen. We know what happened here. This is the quote. Arizona GOP gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake who has attacked drag queens as dangerous to children, attended the shows of drag queen Richard Stevens for more than 20 years, and once hired him to perform at her home. Do you care to address that? I do care. I actually do care to address that, and I'm really shocked. I'm actually appalled that Fox News would take defamatory story like that, and we are pursuing legal action against this drag queen. I'm appalled that you would bring that up when you have not talked about our stolen election. You've failed to talk about We just spent three that. questions, Ms. Lake, talking about this. So I just, I just want to point this out that, and by the way, you can't see it, but the amount of Vaseline it looks like that this woman has on the lens of her camera, she seems to be speaking to us from the bottom of a fishbowl. But her, you know, you, you go back and forth about should, should, do you give people, as a journalist, do you give a person like that a platform? Or do you, or, or, or shun them? And I think shunning is wrong, mostly. I don't think you need to have her back 20 times, right? You don't want to do, you know, this, when you put Matt Gates on every week or whatever, that's not, that's not journalistically sound. But I think if you got somebody who's running for office and you bring them on, and, but then you have to do the hard thing, which Brett did, which is you have to hold them accountable. And you have, you have to ask those difficult questions, even though, of course, it's going to upset some of your viewers. So kudos to Brett and the team at Special the Forces. upset the candidate. Yeah. Well, she's, she's, she's pretty clearly bound to be upset. I think she is a person who is being upset is a lifestyle for her. Well, thankfully, it looks like we overcame our audio pr problems to bring <laughs> you the news about the news. That is all the time we have left. So if there is a story you want us to talk about, please email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts with an S dot com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. And don't forget to leave us a five, six, or seven-star review. 